Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you all here, Emmanuel. Uh, thank you to Matthew, to Micah, for giving me the opportunity, uh, especially on Christ the King Sunday, to come and bring the ministry of the Word. Uh, I, though they told me I only had 20 or 30 minutes, and as the grandson, the great-grandson of a holiness pastor who'd spent a loose 30 setting up uh, the offering plate, I do take personal offense to that. Um, <coughs> So we'll see. We'll see. No promises. No promises. Uh, as Micah said, I am from coming to you from Brooklyn. I'm the lead pastor of Oates Church, Brooklyn, uh, in the Williamsburg section, not Virginia, but <laughs> of Brooklyn, New York City. Uh, and we are a neighborhood church centered at the intersection of the contemplative and the charismatic, which essentially means we try to live ordered lives so that the Holy Spirit can come in and mess it up. Um, and it's a pretty fun thing. Uh, here's the deal. As a New Yorker, uh, one thing you may know if you know any of us is that we are often like quick on time. And so we just want to get to the point. And I just want to tell you right off the top, I'm not going to bury the lead. I think the Lord has a word today. And I just want to give it to you in case you fall asleep on me, in case you start, you know, last night starts catching up. And it's simply this. Regardless of your opinion, Jesus is king. Not in the way that you think. And that's good news. All right, that's what we got to say. So we'll just pray. And we're gonna get uh, I am going to pray for us and we're going to dive in. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive and well and Lord over us. The first of many. God, may your word minister to us. May it teach us. May it rebuke us. May it correct us. May it train us up in righteousness. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. All right. So regardless of your opinion, Jesus is king. Uh, the Apostle John, who wrote, uh, well, actually, let me back up. The two texts from our lectionary today uh, that anchor us, the epistle reading and the gospel reading, were both penned by the same person, the Apostle John, the one who Jesus loved as he was ought to write. And it's in the tension of these two texts and their surrounding context that I really believe that the Lord both wants to reveal a clear perception of himself, reveal a clear perception of who we are, and provide an invitation into the king, his kingship over our lives. Now, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation in his last days. He was an old man, and he was exiled on the island of Patmos uh, during the Rome with the emperor Domitian, and during this time of persecution of the early church. And he opens his letter to the seven churches with this pronouncement. I just want to read it. He says, from our reading today, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the king of kings. See, John is quite convinced of the kingship of Jesus and his authority over all things, and for good reason. See, John, writing as an old man, was once a young man, and he followed this simple man named Jesus. And for three years, he stayed with him day and night. And over those three years, he saw this king, this Jesus, practice lordship over a storm when he spoke a word, and it stopped. He saw him heal a woman and practice kingship over sickness when she touched the hem of his robe. He saw him feed a crowd with the boy's lunch, and he saw him die on a cross, be laid in a tomb, and three days later, 
walk out. And so for John, there is no ambiguity. Jesus is king. This man is king. Now, we can contrast that with our gospel text, again, also written by John. But John gives us the account of the day in which Jesus was crucified. And he's on trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate uh, is a a general ruler under the Roman Empire, uh, tasked with ensuring the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. And this meant that he was ensuring the exacting of taxes over the people that they had conquered and colonized, but also keeping the general peace, because under the Pax Romana, if you were a colonized or conquered people, you were able to keep your cultural identity just as long as it did not interfere with Roman rule. And so this governor kind of tries to keep everything at bay and keep the money flowing. Now, on what should be a quiet day, Pontius has an uproar and he has this mess on his hands because the Jewish people have brought him this person that they themselves believe should die but don't want to kill. And so they hand him to him to do the dirty work. And Pontius can't make heads of tail or who this man is. And so he comes to him and he asks him a very simple question in our gospel text. Are you the king of the Jews? It's a sincere question. It's evidenced by the fact when Jesus goes on to speak about his kingdom, Pontius retorts, so you are a king. Who are you is what he's asking. He's not quite sure. Pontius couldn't make heads or tail of the man before him, but he knew he was someone. Maybe you're here today and you're confident like John that Jesus is king. It is settled in your heart. But maybe you aren't quite sure. For whatever the reason, you're kind of here, but you don't quite know who Jesus is to you. Either way, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is unconcerned with your take. His kingship is intact irrespective of your judgment. And that's the nature of true power. Even in the face of death, Jesus is unfazed about what people think about him. A little later in the gospel text, Pontius says, you know, as he's exasperatingly trying to get something from Jesus, and he says, man, don't you get it that I have the power to either set you free or to crucify you? To which Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And I pray this brings you the same comfort that it brings me to know that we have a God that doesn't bend to the wavering wants or flight of fancy. Um, Like I said, New York City we know fancy. Uh, there's a uh, restaurant, 11 Madison Park. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it is consistently ranked one of the number one restaurants in the world. And at the beginning of COVID, they ended up shutting down. And they came back, but they came back drastically different. The executive chef, uh, Daniel Hume, came and he said, hey, Uh, we're no longer going to be uh, the restaurant that we were. We're actually going to come back exclusively vegan, right? And so out goes the, like, tenderloin, out goes the slow-roasted duck, you know, all that goes. And then comes the rice porridge and the, like, clay pot beets and these little eggplants that have little slices of eggplants over, like, a little eggplant canoe. But one thing that did not go was the $335 a person uh, price tag. Yes, I'm wondering where they got these vegetables from myself. (laughs) 
And so they come back, and there is this New York Times review. Pete Wells, uh, uh, this great food, food critic, and he goes and he tries this reimagined 11 Madison Park. And in the end of this, like, really scathing review, he writes this. He says, 11 Madison Park still buys meat. Until the year end, the menu offered to customers who book a private dining room that in includes an optional beef dish, roasted tenderloin with fermented peppers and black lime, it's some kind of metaphor for Manhattan where there's always a higher level of luxury. A secret room where the rich eat roasted tenderloin while everybody else gets eggplant canoe. That's the way of Manhattan, but that is not the way of the kingdom of God. And it gives me great joy that we serve a king who can't be bought, manipulated, coerced, or confused, who stands above it all, who stands above whatever it is that you brought in here with you today, who stands above you. Regardless of your opinion, Jesus is king, but not in the way that you think. See, in most of the stories we tell, the first act, uh, it, it starts with a powerful and triumphant king, you know, king author, this, this once and future king, and they demonstrate their power and their ability to survey the kingdom. And then the second act reveals some like clearer and present danger to the royal subjects, right? And this also reveals some potential fatal flaw or some hindrance to the king. And then in that final act, the king overcomes those fatal flaws or whatever that hindrance is. And he comes and he defeats the present danger right before the royal subjects face any like real serious irreparable harm. And sometimes this happens at personal cost, sure. And while the biblical narrative, you may see some of those tropes, it actually diverges in some very important ways. First and foremost is that Jesus bears no inherent flaws or no hindrances. He was, as we just said, above all things. And yet, he does not simply snap his finger and undo all the brokenness of this world. He isn't on a hero's journey in the way we typically catechize and mythologize. Rather, he endures brokenness. He engages it. He places himself in the midst of it and sets up residence. So much so that the scriptures describe him as a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. In the gospel text, Pilate seeks desperately for anything, any reason for which he can let Jesus go. And time and again, he begs Jesus to play along. Give me something. Give me something. And yet, Jesus refuses to free himself. At times, he remains silent in the face of these questions, that very silence that ends up putting him on a hill to die, one of the most horrific deaths that man has ever uh, devised. Uh, for years, my wife and I, we used to lead this community group, life group, E group, C group, whatever you, know, you guys call it. Um, and uh, we... Um, we did a lot of life together, and we endured a lot of things. And I really remember, it's probably about six years ago now, one night, one of uh, 
the young woman in that group, she came, uh, she missed the, the night, and we were pretty faithful of, of gathering together each week, and she missed because she had a migraine. Now, I've never had a migraine, and if you've never had a migraine, um, I think we can be pardoned for mistaking it for a headache, but what I've now come to learn and know is that essentially, if you want to know what a migraine is, take two rods, stick one between your eyes and one behind your ears and leave them there, uh, and then you'll have some sense of how a migraine operates. It's not a very pleasant thing. It's excruciating, agonizing pain. It causes nausea, disorientation. It's hard to focus. It will drive you mad. And so she had this migraine, and what we didn't know was that migraine wasn't going to be up in a week. It wasn't going to be up in a month. It wasn't going to be up in a year. For four years, she struggled, agonized, terrorized. She was a teacher, an educator, had to be pulled out of her normal classroom. Her very career was threatened. She didn't know if she could actually do her job anymore. She went to every doctor imaginable. They couldn't find or give her a reason for what had happened and why the sudden change in her body. She tried every shot and medicine and treatment she could find and was advised. She traveled around seeking help and it would not come. There were so many nights we sat on our couch and we prayed in the name of Jesus that this migraine would cease. We laid hands, we anointed, we did all the things. I don't know what else we could have done. And it didn't dissipate. It didn't let up. And I remember, it's now a couple years past, talking with her one day and she just kind of like slipped into our conversation that the migraines were gone. And had been gone for some while, she couldn't even put a time on it. And that may sound really strange to you, right? Because of what I just imagined, you would think that the day that this thing dissipated, we would have been like having a parade, calling your moms and them, and telling everybody like, I am free, I am whole, I am healthy. But here's what had happened. She had found Jesus' healing, but it came way before it came way before that migraine ceased because she found Jesus. She found Jesus in the midst of that suffering when he came in the presence of her friends, when he came with the people that would sit with her when she couldn't get out of bed, when the meals were brought, when her, her school uh, helped set her up in a new room. She found Jesus rendering her heart and her desire to control her life right? When she had become laid low, when she could no longer do for herself what she could have done, this high achieving person was now effectively a shill of herself. She found Jesus sitting there in the midst, in the mess, in the muck, and the mire. And when she saw him, the pain was there, but the pain wasn't there. And so she was able to move forward in life with that pain on her back. And so by the time it dissipated and it was gone, she was already still a person on the move, walking hand in hand with Jesus. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you've been going through over the last two years. Remember when we thought it was just going to be a summer? But I find it my responsibility as a minister of Jesus and a faithful witness to his gospel not to tell you that everything is going to be all right anytime soon, if at all.
the cancer may win. And this job search may linger. There will be more killings that you can't justify and reason with and ask why. There will be more verdicts that piss you off. I'm sorry. Those feelings you have aren't just going to evaporate. And deep down, you may know or suspect this. And maybe animosity towards God and even Jesus has been rising and building because we sing songs about how he's so good and he's never going to let me down and he's always faithful. And you're like, if that's true, then where is he? And where has he been? Because I've been here in all of this mess it seems like he's sleeping in the bottom of a boat. But I have to tell you that the testimony of Scripture isn't primarily that Jesus will fix your issues, though we believe that one day all striving and pains will cease. No, the testimony of Scripture is primarily that the king of all kings, the one who is above it all, comes and is in it all, and he walks with you through it, whatever you're doing, so that you will have the confession of the psalmist that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Not because you've dissipated, not because you've shined the light and drove the shadow away, but because your rod and your staff, what comforts me and guides me, it is a comfort. And so we serve a Jesus, we serve a king who is slow to vanquish the things that kill us. But he enters our pain and he sits with us and he endures it with us. Like a good shepherd, he's left the 99 on the mountaintop and he's coming to the valley to find you and to sit with you. And Jesus has a tenacity to walk with you through whatever you're facing. And even if it kills you, he has the power to fix that. Because regardless of what you think, Jesus is king. Not in the way you think, but that's good news. The gospel of John is that Jesus sits with us and the things that are killing us. The truth, the revelation of revelation, is sometimes that what's killing us is us. In our revelation, in our in our uh, epistle reading, verse 7, it says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, John writes, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. That's a weird thing if you think about it. Here comes Jesus. Everybody's going to mourn. This is a reference to Zechariah. Uh, as an Old Testament prophet of Israel. And in Zechariah, I want to read this for you, actually. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, Zechariah tells the people of Israel, I will pour out on the house of David, speaking of the Lord, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son, the deep conviction that falls on the nation of Israel is that they will one day realize they have killed the very Savior that they were waiting for. And that conviction of Israel in Revelation is expanded to all people, that each of us present at the return of Jesus in the light of his glory will immediately know what foolish lives we have been living. 
chasing our own pleasures, subverting the cause of justice, ignoring the plea of the hungry and the oppressed, satiating our own desires and charting our own courses, building our own kingdoms in the light of his glory, but we'll find that it is foolishness and vanity and empty. Because sometimes what's killing us is us. Which is why it's so good that we have the kingship of Jesus. Because he comes in and he makes all things new. Regardless of your opinion, Jesus is king. Not in the way that you think. And this is good news. I don't know, maybe you're sitting here today and the weight of your sin and the destruction your choices have wrecked in your life, have, have brought, has wrought in your life. Maybe it seems too much to bear. And to that, I just want to give you the words of the writer of Hebrews who says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with confidence, throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Father's throne is constructed of grace, not condemnation. And he knows what it means to be tempted to provide for your own sustenance, and he chose to live not on bread alone. He knows what it means and what it feels like to, to, be, uh, your, to not know your identity to have your identity questioned and to try to find your identity in the pursuit of other things as you look at the kingdoms of the world. And he has chose to believe in the identity affirmed by the Father and to push aside the words of the devil. He knows what it's like to be tempted to chase after the folly of gold and wealth and status. And he has rejected it because he has found the love of the Father worth more than any of those things. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And maybe what you're coming in today is that you're suffering under something that you've been suffering under and it's weighing you, it's weighing you down. It's breaking your heart. And for you, a little later in Hebrews, the writer says, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. <clears throat> the one who knows intimately what suffering is, is pleading on your behalf. The spirit, the, the scriptures say that the spirit is groaning with an with a, with a urgency too deep for words. Jesus is calling and he is beseeching and he is acting on your behalf and he wants to enter into all the things that are threatening to kill you and he wants to worsen for your good. But only if you'll let him. Only if you'll let him be king. So how do we do this? It's very simple. We're going to end with this, Romans 10, 9 through 10. <clears throat> if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is King and we can believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, meaning that God has the power 
God has the power to undo finality. If we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Because it is by our mouths that we confess and are justified. Or it's by our hearts that we believe and are justified, but it's by our mouths that we confess and are saved. And so we believe in our hearts that, Jesus, you do want to be king over me. We believe you have the power to be king over the things that are killing me, even if it's me. And I confess that you are Lord. Let me pray. We don't have to belabor the port, Jesus. We just give you praise and thanks that you are not just above it all, but in it all. And that regardless of what we think, you are king and not in the ways that we think. And that is good news. Good news indeed. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.